0: Hello, and welcome back to Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. This is part two of our episode on Rickett's Circus in the Capital City. Last time, we introduced you to John Bill Ricketts and how he had brought his equestrian circus to Philadelphia in the 1790s, perhaps the first circus in America. We ended the show by referencing Philip Astley, often credited with inventing the modern circus. Well, who was this Philip Astley? Let's begin with him, and then I promise this leads us back to Philadelphia and the story of John Bill Ricketts again. The mid to late 18th century was a period when large urban centers were growing throughout Europe and the Americas. And one of the things about large urban populations is that they often have some spare time. And to fill that spare time, they desire entertainment. And as a result of all the frequent warfare of that century... Conducted by increasingly large and professionalized armies, there was also an increasingly large number of former professional soldiers and cavalrymen living on only rather skimpy government pensions, men with a very specific set of skills who were now looking for further employment. Sometimes these men founded what are called writing schools or writing academies, large enclosed buildings which had an open area with a dirt floor in the center and galleries around it. The school would be used to teach wealthy people the skills that one needed to display oneself on horseback in such new urban public venues as the circus. Now, in this case, the circus means the large oval riding track in Hyde Park in London. Circus was a word also used to describe large traffic intersections which required coaches and horses to travel in a roundabout, such as Piccadilly Circus, which you may know in London, it's still there today, but it was built in 1819. The riding schools would also train your horse in fancy steps and to obey commands. The instructors often wearing military red coats to make them stand out, of these riding schools to supplement their income, would also stage exhibitions of trick riding uh, where they could show off their ability to stand on horses, jump from one horse to another, fall off and remount, vault over moving horses, and generally to exhibit their training and grace of the horses of the stable. A moving large number of horses in tandem to very specific commands was essential in the warfare of that era, which depended upon cavalry charges, and the most talented and responsive horses were bred and trained to do very elaborate dance moves. Philip Astley was one of these men. A tall, charismatic, and commanding figure the former cavalryman Philip Astley is usually given the credit for having invented what came to be called the modern circus. True, Astley himself never actually used the word circus to describe the show. So how did that happen? Well, Astley began using his accumulated capital from the riding instructor business and constructed amphitheaters, always at what his posters described to the public as at considerable expense. You can see the beginning of a trend here. A promoter of popular entertainment always mentions how much money he is spending, how luxurious the accommodations for the public are, for which they only had to pay a small emission fee to witness. Anyway, Astley built a succession of large equestrian amphitheaters on the south side of the Thames River, close to the end of the Westminster Bridge. Waterloo Railway Station now occupies the site. From his grandstands and boxes, one could view Astley's regular shows exhibited in an open circular arena—he had decided that 42 feet was the perfect diameter—around which his horses would canter and perform. These proved to be highly lucrative businesses, and he would eventually build similar amphitheaters in Paris and Dublin. The first London performance space was uncovered, but it was replaced by a succession of larger and fancier roof structures that we would today recognize as a theater. Usually, which with a large proscenium arch stage at one end, the equestrian ring was on the floor of the pit in front of the stage, and ramps were often used to allow horses to travel from the pit to the stage. But Astley's particular innovation the one that made him stand out from all the previous trick riders and equestrians that had entertained at European fairgrounds and riding schools for centuries was interspersing the equestrian portion of the show with theatrical elements, clowns, acrobats, and pantomime entertainments. Such enticements were already commonly used at many popular London theatres and Astley simply incorporated them into his horse shows. Italian clowns, tumblers from Sadler's Wells Theater, comic actors, writers of pantomime sketches, all found employment in these increasingly spectacular equestrian entertainments. This is why Astley and other early practitioners of professional circuses are part of the history of the theater. Astley made famous what was likely even then a venerable and reliably entertaining equestrian comic skit, in which a supposedly clumsy and intoxicated rider is outmaneuvered by a wily and disobedient horse who refuses to move on command. Now, of course, the person is actually in command of the horse, but it doesn't look like that to the audience. The skit was usually given some variant of the title, The Tailor of Brentford. Astley himself would often play the tailor character, which in his version was a tipsy-dandy wanting to ride off to the nearby town of Brentford to cast his vote in an election for the radical English politician John Wilkes. Astley was a firm Tory and did not approve of Wilkes, so the joke was all the better as far as he was concerned. The tailor fails comically and repeatedly to mount the horse, falling off, getting on backwards, putting the saddle on wrong, and so forth. The horse was trained to lie down obstinately on the ground and then comically rise when offered a drink. Despite a storm of ineffective remonstrances, the mount would pull off his own saddle and steal the tailor's hat, steal his bottle, steal his handkerchief and his whip, fueling his master's increasing annoyance, but delighting all the onlookers. Eventually, the horse ends up chasing the chasen tailor off stage, his vote never cast. This act with its sure-fire gags and its simple narrative, was a consistent crowd-pleaser. It was thereafter used at the end of almost every equestrian performance the world over, and remains a staple of many equestrian shows and rodeos today. Though Astley usually gets the credit as the first man of the circus, the word circus was only permanently attached to this form of entertainment in the 1780s due to the efforts of two other London theatrical entrepreneurs, the impresario and songwriter Charles Dibden and a master of horse named Charles Hughes. Their business establishment, which included a theater, a riding ring, a school, and a coffee house, was christened the Royal Circus and was built to the east of Astley's Amphitheatre in South London, next to one of those traffic circuses. Elaborate pantomimes and musical entertainments were offered to the public, combined with the feats of the trained writers. The laws and statutes governing London commercial entertainments namely the Theater Licensing Act of 1737, the Vagrancy Act, and the Disorderly Houses Act, were used against circus performers once they began to establish their own premises with such elements as clowns, pantomimes, acrobats, and began to employ both comic and dramatic scenarios. In 1782, the patent holders of the legitimate theaters, that is, Covent Garden, Drury Lane, brought suit and both Astley's and the Royal Circus were briefly closed after a court trial. But Parliament eventually allowed a solution where the circuses were given licenses of their own as long as they did not perform plays and did not use spoken dialogue. Under these curious rules, the circus managers were mostly willing to comply. Horses don't talk, after all, though the rules for humans were often bent by various ingenious ruses. To avoid conflict with these established licensed theaters in London, which had the legal right to perform all professional spoken drama, Dibden and Hughes had also initially used the Dodge, which had dated back to the days of Elizabethan boys' companies, of having their performing company made up not by adults, but by a company of young apprentices attending the organization's training school it is likely that John Bill Ricketts was one of these young performers. Certainly many of his biographers pointedly mentioned that Ricketts had trained at Hughes Royal Circus. If indeed he was one of these performing apprentices, at an early age Ricketts had the opportunity to gain considerable experience the front of large crowds. The, the Royal Circus held an audience of over a thousand people at full capacity. Most standard accounts of Ricketts' career emphasize his years in America and pay little attention to his early career in Britain, but recent research by the historian Kim Baston has done a great deal to fill in these gaps in Ricketts' early story, noting how he developed his equestrian skills and his management ability and his troupe of fellow performers. It was in this period that Ricketts learned all the elements of running an equestrian circus that were key to his later success in America. The Dibden and Hughes enterprise eventually suffered a financial collapse, and Ricketts became a working member of another equestrian troupe that took over the Royal Circus's establishment. This company was often away from London, touring in the north of England, and even established a new performing base in Edinburgh, Scotland. During this time, Ricketts met and formed professional relationships with a varied group of young international performers would later join him in America. For instance, Antonio Bartolomeo Spinacuta, an Italian clown and acrobat, and his wife, Helena Spinacuta, nay, Petterson, who was from Sweden, and a Scottish clown named MacDonald. He also took into the profession his own younger brother, Francis Ricketts. By comparing descriptions of the performances of this company in Great Britain, with those that eventually occurred in america we can see how much of rickett's circus act was developed during these formative years in march of 1792 rickett's troupe was in scotland offering quote, "the most brilliant spectacle ever exhibited" baston notes that one spectacular act that rickett's would later bring with him to america the leap through the blazing sun was first presented in edinburgh This feat involved, quote, "'Leaping over a garter 12 feet high and performing which he will force a passage through a balloon in fire suspended in the air.'" Close Scottish quotes. An artist who lived in Newcastle, somewhat to the south of Edinburgh, named Thomas Bewick, or Bewick, uh, became interested in this troupe when it travelled through the northern English town in 1789. Not only did he make fascinating sketches of the equestrian performances, which are now in the collection of the British Museum, I've posted them on the website, see the link in the program notes, but he also seems to have clearly drawn John Bill Ricketts at an early age. One drawing is entitled Mr. Ricketts' Night, and depicts a young performer emerging from a suspended barrel, preparing to leap upon the backs of two horses galloping underneath. He is also seen performing the trick of catching oranges on a fork while galloping along on horseback. In Edinburgh, in 1790, Ricketts performed his version of another classic equestrian comic sketch entitled Metamorphosis, or The Peasant's Frolic on Horseback. Ricketts, pretending to be an inexperienced and inebriated farmer in the audience, would be invited by other performers into the ring to ride the horses if he knew so much, Well, after demanding a huge sack to cover him while he rode to protect him from the cold, the farmer would then awkwardly mount the horse and begin to ride, but disappear, into the sack, underneath which he would swiftly remove the peasant costume and then, poof, dramatically emerge in a glamorous equestrian outfit, revealing to the delighted audience his true level of expertise. Like the tailor of Brentford, this drunken peasant routine— seldom failed to please and it was also to be repeated down through the years by many circus troops thanks to Berwick's drawings we can also see an illustration of another skill rickets often performed throughout his career while riding on the backs of two horses simultaneously a child performer would balance gracefully on his shoulders and the child to the delight and amazement of the crowd would balance on top of his master on one foot as he galloped around the ring standing on one leg in the attitude of Mercury. If we compare this program to that of other equestrian circus companies around Britain and the rest of Europe during this period, we can see that Ricketts was now fully skilled in all aspects of this burgeoning popular theatrical form, for it needs to be stressed that when John Bill Ricketts made his journey across the ocean to America— Not only was he not the first equestrian circus master, he was one of a multitude of international touring equestrian circuses that were giving performances in cities such as St. Petersburg, Russia, Stockholm, Sweden, Berlin, Edinburgh, Dublin, London, and Paris. Rather than being seen as a historic inventor of American circus. Ricketts is properly viewed as an important representative of a worldwide commercial trend in popular entertainment, which he imported to America in an already sophisticated and highly specific form. What we don't have a lot of information about, or at least I've never seen it, is why Ricketts decided that his future lay not in England, but America. Well, it may simply have been a matter that he, an ambitious young businessman, found the market in Great Britain rather saturated, as we say nowadays, and taking advantage of a brief break in the hostilities between European powers at the time, he thought it would be a good time, a propitious moment, to break ground on new markets in North America. Ricketts sailed from Edinburgh and arrived in Boston. In the autumn of 1792 transporting his trained horses with him on the ship and as we know by april of 1793 he'd begun performances in philadelphia but and this is another important thing to stress ricketts had no intention of staying in only one city ever uh, over the course of his american career equestrian performers depended on touring it was an expected part of the business Ricketts and his company would eventually travel as far north as Montreal and as far south as Charleston, South Carolina. There would be many additional performances in between, too. In such places as as Baltimore, Albany, Providence, Norfolk, the performances in New York City that he did rivaled those he offered in Philadelphia. And to this extent, Ricketts' business model was quite similar to the practices of troops of actors such as Hallams, which we talked about in episode number two, who had been touring America since the middle of the 18th century. So, how big was Ricketts' potential audience in late 18th century Philadelphia? Could he make a living that way? Well, according to U.S. census figures, Philadelphia began the 1790s with a population of 28,522. By 1800, it had grown to 41,220. New York City was swiftly moving to outpace its rival, Philadelphia, with a population of 33,131 in 1790 and surging to 60,515 in 1800. However, to be fair, if one includes the adjacent townships of Southwark and Kensington to the north, The entire Philadelphia area had an urban population of about 45,000 in 1790 and 70,000 in 1800. In point of fact, no American city was yet large enough to support even a regular theater company year-round, and enterprising thespians and equestrians had to be ready to travel from one city to another if they wanted to maintain a consistent income. Moreover, A circus company faced a particular issue because they relied upon the exhibition of trained animals and they couldn't vary their repertoire in the same way that all human companies could. A typical stock theater company of the 18th and 19th century might have dozens of plays, sketches, and afterpieces they could rely upon to vary the bill night after night. Indeed, their audience would have expected it Enticing the audience to return again and again to the theater was essential for the box office, and for that, a variety of material was needed. Circus performers, for their part, frequently repackaged their basic routines and then advertised these all-new innovations extensively. New costumes, new character names, new scenery—all of these were employed for variety's sake. As a programming technique, this indeed proved to be fairly successful— Uh, The legitimate theater companies in every American city Ricketts visited often saw a significant drop in attendance upon his arrival. They were often forced to schedule their own performances on alternate nights uh, as the circus, but at least they knew Ricketts would eventually have to move on to a different location once the local audience had had a good view of everything he offered. Okay, we'll break it off here, as they say. And we're going to pick up the story of John Bill Ricketts and the early days of theater and popular entertainment in Philadelphia when we meet again next time. Thanks for coming along on this adventure in theater history, Philadelphia.